Hello folks, welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode, drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and yet another instalment of Naval Month. Today we're going to look at a significant figure in the history of the Royal Navy, but no, it's not Nelson because we're not being predictable. I am joined by Paul Martinovich, who is the author of The Sea is My Element, The Eventful Life of Admiral Sir Pulteney Malcolm. 1766 to 1838. So you've guessed who we're going to focus on today. Paul, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and it's very good to be part of your podcast. That's that's very kind of you to say. Normally people just go, oh yeah, I'm I'm fine, and uh, don't compliment the podcast. So so thank you very much for that. It's much appreciated. Let's let's start logically with uh, Malcolm's early life. So a career in the Navy is one of those that generally appealed to what you might call the younger sons. But Pulteney comes from a particularly large family, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Uh, He came from a family of 17 children. He was the third son and sixth child. So you could call him the younger son. There are a lot of others in that category in the same family. But that's a very big family. What kind of impact did that have on his early childhood? Or was it kind of one of those things where it's just a case of we need to get you out of the house and into a profession, preferably the Navy ASAP? Well, certainly the latter. Um, Obviously, in a family of 17, they're not all present in the house at the same time. Uh, The first cohort have gone before the the later ones are on the scene. But um, uh, it it did cause cast a strong uh, effect over his early and sort of middle career, mainly because of the uh, financial problems that resulted from such a large family, considering his father was not a wealthy man by any means. Uh, His father was um, a farm, a tenant farmer and farm manager in the lowlands of Scotland uh, near Langholm in Dumfries. And the, the initial years of, of George Malcolm, his father's uh, career, were fairly prosperous and they did quite well. And then the children started coming, 17 children in 20 years. And um, it obviously became more and more difficult for him to maintain his family at any kind of level of um, economic prosperity. Uh, added to that, uh, George Malcolm made a very uh, unfortunate financial investment. Uh, He started importing wine with some relatives, uh, Madeira from the island, of course. And that went quite well until 1778 when the war broke out with France and the wine owning classes uh, suddenly decided they couldn't afford to pay for this uh, luxury item. 
and the bottom dropped out of the wine market, at least as far as Malcolm was concerned. So unfortunately, he'd signed some personal um, uh, loans that uh, he was now due for, and they were uh, a, a source of real problems for the rest of his life. And so that brings us to Pulteney, because Pulteney and his brother John, in particular, spent a lot of time in their first 20 years of their careers trying to get out from under these debts, pay their father's debts, and um, yeah, get into a financial st stable position. Uh, so that's you know the short, the long and the short of it. So is it that they felt obligated to pay their father's debts, or was there actually just a kind of a hereditary obligation that you know, once the I'm not sure when the, um, the father passes away, but is it a case of you know it passes on to the next of kin, and so therefore they had to pay those debts, or was it kind of a a family familial ties kind of sense of obligation? I think it was a family uh, obligation. I don't know that there was any uh, legal requirement for the sons to take on the father's debts, but uh, they certainly felt an obligation to clear these. And they did just before George died in 1803. So uh, they succeeded, but it was a bit of a struggle. Is that an indication of a, a close family unit? It is indeed. The, the, uh, the children of George Malcolm and his wife, uh, Margaret, usually called Bonnie Peggy, were an extraordinarily close family, despite the size of the family. And um, this can be seen by the fact that Pulteney Malcolm uh, always felt that the, the family home at Burnfoot in uh, the Lowlands was really where his heart was. And he corresponded with his sisters throughout their lives. The, the five of the sisters lived there uh, for much of, most of the time. And he co corresponded with his parents, obviously, when they were alive. And he spent his summers there when he could. So um, there was clearly, it was a very close-knit family, very affectionate, and it was at the center of his life. I'm already starting to like the sound of this individual. You know, somebody who's fundamentally kind of a, a family guy. I hope that kind of continues as we start to talk about um, his other relationships. So he has an eventful career, let's be fair. One of the particular curious things that piqued my interest is his trip to Manila Bay with Captain Edward Cook. So tell us a bit about that. Yes, this is uh, one of the highlights of Malcolm's career, even though it occurred fairly early on. Uh, it, the context is that in uh, 1797, word reached the Indian Ocean fleet that the Spanish had changed sides and the Spanish were now um, allies of the French. At this time, Malcolm was commanding a small frigate called the Fox in the Indian Ocean. And uh, the fact that the Spanish had changed sides drew the uh, attention of most of the senior officers in the Indian Ocean for two reasons. One was that um, uh, a Spanish, a force of Spanish warships in Manila would be a real threat to the China trade, the ships coming from Canton through the South China Sea to get to India and eventually to Britain. Uh, so that needed to be taken into account. The other factor was that in 1762, during the Seven Years' War, Britain had taken Manila with a combined expedition. And as a result, the senior officers had become immensely wealthy. And this did not pass unnoticed amongst the senior officers in uh, the Indian Ocean in, 18, in 1797 and eight, when um, people started to think, well, perhaps we could do that again. Um, 
so that's the context. Uh, the immediate uh, con uh, circumstances were that uh, Cook and Malcolm were to take their two frigates and convoy a um, group of Chinese ships north through the uh, South China Sea to Canton, wait for them and bring them back. This was a standard uh, part of the work of frigates in the Indian Ocean. They managed to get permission to, uh, in the course of this um, work, to take a look in at Manila Bay to see what was going on. Uh, it wasn't very clear exactly what they were going to do or how they were going to do this, but nevertheless, the uh, commander-in-chief of the Indian Ocean, whose name was Peter Rainier, um, acquiesced to the suggestion from the two captains that they, they take a look at Manila. So uh, they hashed up a scheme to um, uh, get the information they needed, which was basically how many ships, how many Spanish ships were in Manila, what state of condition were they in, were they seaworthy or not, and what were the defenses and the troops in the area like all information that would be relevant to um, any potential combined operation. There was also a rumor that there was a Spanish treasure ship in Manila, and I have no doubt that this also uh, was one of the factors that got Cook and Malcolm interested in uh, taking a look in and seeing what they could stir up uh, in, in their activities. So the, the way they decided to do this was that they were going to fool the Spanish. They were going to disguise their ships as French ships. The Spanish knew that there was a French uh, squadron in the area and uh, take that as far as they could in terms of fooling the Spanish to the point at which they would give them uh, unsolicited the advice, the information they needed. So apparently they certainly flew French flags. Uh, the officers, both Cook and Malcolm spoke good French, which helped. Uh, the officers on board the ships wore some version of French uniforms. And I have a feeling that they did something to the ships. They painted them or something to make them resemble French frigates. So they sailed into the Manila Bay past Corregidor Island and anchored just offshore as you would do if you were a visiting pair of warships. And out came the boat with the uh, port officials and the customs people and so on. They came aboard and they were greeted by Malcolm. The Fox was the, was the first into the bay. And so that was the first ship that the Spanish approached. Uh, Malcolm greeted them in French very uh, hospitably. And with, within a few minutes, Edward Cook uh, came aboard as well in his pseudo French uniform. And the pair of captains took the Spanish down to the um, captain's uh, cabin and entertained him for an hour. And they had a nice chat and some wine and all the time the uh, British captains were pretending to be French and bringing it off. They, they made it work. And they got the information they needed. They got the, uh, they found out that there was in fact a Spanish uh, squadron in the port of Manila, but it was not seaworthy. There'd been a typhoon and the, the ships had been damaged and they weren't going to be going to sea anytime soon. Uh, at, the, at this point, another boat came out from the city with another group of officials and they were also welcomed on board, but it, it was clear at this point that there was not much point in continuing this um, ruse de guerre. So uh, Cook and Malcolm announced to their guests that, oh, by the way, we're not French, we're British. And this is a British ship. Uh, the Spanish were dumbfounded to say the least. 
Um, but they kind of took it in, I won't say good heart, but they didn't really have much choice. They said, oh, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, but it all sort of turned out well in the sense that the Spanish were let go. They didn't keep them captive. There was no real point. Um, they had, during the course of these uh, discussions, the, the crew of the two ships had taken two, three gunboats that were um, anchored nearby and they became prizes. But the, the uh, three or more uh, Spanish officers were all sent back on land um, and they may have even given them some dinner. It's not entirely clear, but anyway, that there was a fairly uh, um, friendly exchange and the Spanish were released. Um, so that the, the uh, British captains got the information they needed. Uh, no, there were no blows exchanged. It was all very uh, civilized and they sailed out of the bay and onto uh, other duties. Uh, so that, that was a, a pretty astonishing uh, accomplishment, which received a lot of play in the um, Indian newspapers and in the British newspapers in India. But to my surprise, when I looked at it, it wasn't even mentioned in the British newspapers. And the reason is because it took six months to get the news home. And by that time, there'd been the Battle of the Nile and all kinds of other um, extraordinary uh, pieces of, of uh, news concerning the Revolutionary War. And so it was just so old that uh, despite its sort of um, astonishing nature, it didn't get a lot of play in the newspapers. See, this is what I've loved about Naval Month. All the way through, we've just had revelations and stories like this that are just, you, you almost couldn't write them. And if you did, people would go, oh, that's ridiculous. That would never happen. But they do. This is staggering. I mean, Dressing themselves in French uniforms and disguising the ships, was that strictly legal? Were there, because to put it into a, an army context, if you were caught in uh, a uniform that wasn't your own, you could be shot as a spy. So were there certain risks involved in doing that? Or is it a case of, well, we expect to be there in force anyway, so it'll probably be okay? As far as I can tell, there was no... Um, strong legal sanction against this kind of activity. The, the, the strong legal sanction was you couldn't fire on an enemy ship under uh, false colors. But um, I'm not aware of, and I haven't seen anything in the accounts of this event, that the, um, uh, the dressing up in uh, somebody else's uniform and pretending to be them was in fact illegal under the laws of war. Just astonishing, genuinely astonishing. And, and these brilliant stories just keep on coming. Now, he ends up missing Trafalgar, and it's important to emphasize that he just misses Trafalgar. But this is quite a remarkable story in itself, isn't it? Because when the news arrives that the Franco-Spanish fleet are leaving Cadiz, his ship is, for all intents and purposes, in pieces, right? Yes, um, this is another important moment in Malcolm's career. In fact, it's so important that it's the moment I chose for the image on the front of the book. Um, in uh, October 17th, 1805, he was sent by Nelson to do some minor repairs at Gibraltar, um, get some casks re repaired that were leaking and pick up some supplies. On October 21st, the Battle of Trafalgar was fought 
at which time his ship was sitting in Gibraltar with the gunpowder uh, out of it, the topmast down, uh, the, the casks being repaired, and basically in no way could it go to sea. So over the next 24 or 48 hours, um, he and his crew made incredible efforts to put the ship back together. He knew that there was a battle. There had been a small ship come in and say the combined fleet are exiting uh, Cadiz. He knew there was going to be a battle or had already been a battle and, and uh, any additional ship would be very welcome uh, on the spot. So his efforts were extraordinary to get the ship to sea, which he did on the 22nd. Uh, and then even more extraordinary were his efforts to get out of the gut of Gibraltar. It's the narrow opening between uh, Spain and Morocco, where the Mediterranean flows uh, out of the uh, into the uh, Atlantic Ocean. The problem was that the wind was dead against him and the current in that area is also from the west to the east. So he was trying to get to the west and it just wasn't working. There were a number of merchant ships that turned back. They just couldn't get through, but he made it through by uh, very uh, skillful seamanship, basically. He arrived on the scene of the battle on the, on the 23rd of uh, October, two days after the battle, and then uh, started uh, about two weeks of intense work uh, uh, rescuing ships that were adrift because there was a gale was coming up and uh, the storm after Trafalgar had great effect upon the both fleets uh, and the prizes that the British had taken. So uh, the result was that even though he wasn't on the spot, he did an immense amount of work after the battle to uh, help the, the ships that were damaged to get prize crews off ships that were sinking and basically to help clean up the, the aftermath of this enormous um, event and was recognized by uh, Collingwood for this um, uh, extreme uh, activity. How, I mean, the, to put a ship back together in 24 hours, given what you've said, it's, it's a remarkable kind of thing. Had he needed to go into action, how, Kind of well prepared was the ship because you know did they have to kind of bodge things back together to get themselves to sea was this in some respects a kind of well you know we're not going to be in a, a good situation to fight we're not going to have the ability to maneuver as well as we'd like but we're needed and so we've got to go or had he turned up and there had been a battle you know would he have been able to to maneuver the ship and fight as effectively as he would have liked uh, no, the, uh, it's pretty clear that the uh, status of his ship, which was called the Donegal, after he'd put it back together, was a fully-fledged fighting ship that wasn't um, uh, shortcuts taken in order to get to sea. He'd done, he's just done everything faster than normally, about three or four times faster than normally. Um, the, the one thing that does occur in a number of uh, accounts of this is that it's said that he put to sea towing his foremast, or not his foremast, but his uh, foreyard, the, one of the major elements of the rigging uh, beside the ship in order to put it up to, uh, hoist it up to place while in, in, en route rather than waiting in order to um, get that done before he, he set out. But 
the log doesn't actually support that um, story. But this, it seems pretty clear that his was fully his ship was fully uh, stored and ready for action, and he was he was expecting to actually fight. I suspect when he got to the scene, uh, if there were French or Spanish ships that needed to be uh, taken care of. That's astonishing. Is this typical of the guy? You know, do we kind of see this sort of do things incredibly efficiently, be ready to to do your duty pretty much? At a, at a drop of a hat is this kind of is this just what he does absolutely um he prided himself on his the speed at which he got things done and the the adjective that was often applied to him was zealous and that's a, a word that means in this context speedy thorough uh attentive to orders and are very very competent and so uh that, that was Malcolm to a T. He was uh, always um, on the lookout for ways in which he could get things done as faster. And in fact, he even confessed to his wife at one point that he tended to make decisions quickly, even when he didn't have to make speedy decisions, he'd make a speedy decision. So that was his personality. That was the way he did things. Is, is he unique in that respect? Or is he, you know, part of a, a certain breed of Royal Naval officers who who go on to do great things for the army? I don't think he's unique. I think he had this quality in sort of um, uh, to a large extent, but there were other officers who also, I think, had the same kind of outlook on their duty. And um, as a result, were very successful and, and well known for their, um, their skill and ability to get the job done when, the, when it needed to be. This is really quite in incredible to, to hear. And to me, this speaks or it suggests that he's actually quite a, a capable motivator because yes, as an individual, you can be very good at making these decisions, but putting a, a ship back together in such a, a circumstance, you know, that says a lot about your ability to motivate a crew to do all the relevant tasks, do them efficiently and, and get things, uh, get things ship shape. Uh, pardon the pun, um, in, in a time span that is just really quite astonishing. So let's dig into his style of command. I mean, uh, apologies to regular listeners who know that I will shoehorn discussions of discipline into any conversation going. But what's his style like, just on, on a general level, first of all, and, and then we'll talk about discipline very specifically? Well, we're, uh, we have the advantage that we actually know quite a bit about the way in which he commanded his ships, because there's a, a letter from one of his lieutenants uh, to John Malcolm, his brother, that describes the situation in 1810 when he was uh, in command of the Donegal, the ship of the line. And that letter uh, sets out an interesting uh, view of the style of the captain. He's uh, zealous, uh, uh, the, the lieutenant says he's actually too good for a captain, he should be an admiral. But in the way he uh, commands his men, he's uh, not a tartar, not a, a flogging captain by any means. In fact, the lieutenant thinks that he's a bit too lax with the men. He does tend to shout a lot. He's shocking noisy, according to the, um, the lieutenant. Um, 
the Malcolms all had loud no voices. In fact, Ma uh, Pulteney Malcolm actually nearly caused a international incident by laughing too loudly during a diplomatic uh, affair. Uh, and uh, so he sounds, it sounds as if he shouted quite a lot to uh, direct his men. But uh, Wright, the Lieutenant in question goes on to say that he, he never used abusive language, which was pretty common in the Royal Navy as you might imagine. Uh, and once he reprimanded somebody, he never mentioned it again. If they did what he wanted, that's fine. It was not held against them. Um, he was um, careful to ensure that his sailors were active and had things to do. He ensured that they uh, competed with their uh, fellow sailors on other ships. Uh, uh, the kinds of things that, that today we'd say uh, create unit cohesion that get them to feel that they're all part of a team and that the team is uh, all pulling together in one uh, direction. Um, he gave leave as much as he could to his sailors and that was a, a, a sensitive point in the Royal Navy given the, the rates of desertion. And he didn't even bother to ask the Admiralty whether he could give leave, he just gave it. So that made the uh, sailors very comfortable on the ship and uh, the Lieutenant Wright says that there were very few who would have traded this uh, situation for any other um, because of the way in which, the humane way in which uh, Malcolm commanded his men. And it got the ship the nickname the Happy Donegal. It was uh, renowned for the, uh, the, the uh, happiness of the crew and the, the effectiveness of their work. So uh, he was a very effective man manager. I think that's clear to say. Yeah, that's, again, the more you tell me about this guy, the more I'm deeply, deeply impressed because he's doing a lot of things that others in, in the army particularly are saying, look, this is how you should do it. But then trying to get people to follow through on that is something else entirely. Do you see his style being copied? Are there sort of conversations about, look, we know what's happening on the Donegal. This is working. We need to replicate that. Or is it just a case of his, his domain being run his particular way? And they're just kind of being uh, a rumor mill, if you like, that what Malcolm does works. That's an interesting question, because, in fact, he addresses this himself in his one of his letters to his wife um, and says that basically this is not the kind of thing that can be done by everybody. Uh, it needs a particular kind of personality. He didn't quite phrase it this way, but that was his conclusion. And I think he was probably right. I think that, well, the ship had the nickname the Happy Donegal, it didn't become a model for other captains because they weren't comfortable with this degree of um, uh, relaxation in commanding the crew or, and they were bound by more traditional modes of uh, command that perhaps were set down by the Admiralty or they'd been trained in as young men. So I'm not sure I would say it was unique. There were certainly other captains who were similar in their approach, but it wasn't a case of um, uh, him setting up a model that then was widely imitated. And whilst you're talking about his wife and we're talking about the guy as an individual, what's his relationship like as a family man? Well, I mentioned his close relationship to his siblings, which um, continued throughout his life. But in 1809, he married Clementina Elphinstone, who was the uh, daughter of Sir William Elphinstone, a director and often 
four-time chairman of the East India Company. So a very important and wealthy um, person in the establishment. He, and Sir William Elphinstone was the brother of Lord Keith, who was the senior admiral afloat in the Royal Navy. So if you were looking to nab a, um, an appropriate or a, a, a wife who was going to do you some career good, this was as good as it gets. But in fact, it's clear that that's not why he married her. And um, he'd known her for some time and uh, they'd become close friends uh, and eventually they got married and they, neither of them were very young. They were, Malcolm was 40 and Clementina was 34. And he also became very close to her family, the Elphinstones, um, not so much Lord Keith, who was a difficult individual, but <laughs> Clementina's parents and her brothers. Uh, and so he called them his second family and he lived with them when he was in London because he didn't maintain his own uh, house for himself and Clementina being at sea almost all the time. So he lived, when he was in London, he stayed at the Alphonsone's house. And, and his closeness to his wife is demonstrated by the number and frequency of uh, letters that he sent to her over the years. And those are the basis of the book that I wrote that um, in them he expresses both his uh, opinions and events of naval nature, but also on all kinds of other matters, which the two uh, were discussing at a distance as it were via letters and uh, his opinions on a whole variety of social matters that um, some of which are predictable and some of which are not, but always reveal his um, closeness to his wife and his thoughtful approach to matters of the day. Is there any indication of what her life was like? Do we have letters going in the opposite direction? Short answer is no. Unfortunately, uh, only perhaps a half a dozen letters of her have survived. And um, that's a shame because it would be really interesting to see. She was an intelligent woman. She knew a lot about the Navy. She met and knew many of the officers independent of Malcolm because of her father's um, uh, place in the East India Company. And she had opinions which occasionally were different than Malcolm's about the worth or lack thereof of certain officers. Um, but unfortunately, very few of her letters survive. What a pity. Um, now this is Naval Month, but I am going to indulge slightly in sort of the Peninsula War obsession that oozes through this podcast, but in a justified sense this time, because Pulteney is involved in the transport of the British Army to Portugal in 1808, and then subsequently had to testify at the Convention of Sintra. Talk us through his involvement there. Well, as your listeners will probably know, the uh, beginning of this process was the British government's des desire to send an expedition to South America, to Venezuela, what's now Venezuela, commanded by Sir Arthur Wellesley, um, that was being set up in early 1808. And then the Spanish uh, rebellion broke out. And for a host of reasons, it became inappropriate to try and detach peace of the Spanish empire, but it also became appropriate to send troops to the peninsula to support the Portuguese and Spanish in their war against the French. So Malcolm happened to be on the spot. I don't think he was specifically chosen for this role, but he was available. There were the Force was at Cork uh, gathering and getting supplies and so on. So he was appointed to 
uh, essentially take the troop ships uh, with the 10,000 men that Wellesley commanded uh, to Portugal and land them somewhere. And the somewhere was up to uh, Wellesley and Sir Charles Cotton, who was the fleet commander on the spot to decide. Um, so uh, that's what he did. Basically, uh, Wellesley selected Mondego Bay, which was um, the, where the Mondego River came out to the sea in Portugal. And Malcolm's job was to get this, the troops ashore as safely and quickly as possible. It wasn't an easy task because even though there was no resistance from the French uh, and the weather was good, the surf was immense on the uh, shore and there was a bar across the river at uh, the Mondego River, which prevented the ships from moving up into the river where it would be easier to land. So it took five days to put the, the troops ashore. They used both uh, boats from the fleet and local boats uh, uh, crewed by Portuguese sailors who knew the area very well and basically got the whole, the whole army ashore with almost no losses. Um, during this time, Malcolm worked very closely with Wellesley. As you can imagine, Wellesley was on board the Donegal for some of the time. Uh, and because they knew each other from many years before, and there's a long story that I won't go into how they did, <laughs> but in any case, the, um, they were very, uh, they worked very well together. Unlike some cases where the naval and military commanders would be at odds, Malcolm and Wellesley were um, very uh, easy, found themselves very easy to work with. The, the troops got ashore. Wellesley, of course, um, gathered them up and set off to meet the French. And then several more flights of troops uh, came from Gibraltar and from England. And Malcolm maintained the same role. He was the man on the spot who got the troops ashore, ensured that they got their supplies. And um, in, the, in addition, he sort of acted as a clearinghouse for Wellesley because all the, as each group of uh, troops appeared, they had a general with them and the general got information from Malcolm about what the situation was and up-to-date in, uh, intelligence on the situation on the ground. And thus was ready to, uh, when he went ashore with his troops to join the uh, growing British army. So that this uh, took place, as many of your listeners will know, over the next month or so. And then they, um, after the Battle of Vimira, the, um, the senior officers took over from Wellesley, the senior army officers, and the Convention of Central was signed. Um, Wellesley talked to, at least by letter, and probably in person to Malcolm about this and expressed his uncomfortableness with the conditions. Um, but Malcolm wasn't a party to it because he was a naval officer who was uh, a little more junior than the, the army people and not involved in the negotiations. But when the inquiry erupted where um, the British government decided to look into the circumstances of this um, apparently uh, unfortunate um, agreement, um, Malcolm was called to testify and he did so. Um, his testimony wasn't all that relevant. It was more, mostly to uh, support Wellesley's um, position and particularly the, the idea that Wellesley had uh, carefully selected Mondego Bay 
and that this was our, our appropriate place for the troops to land. Uh, the, the larger issue about the conditions uh, under which the French had been returned to France, that was not something that Malcolm could speak to. But Wellesley was very pleased that his friend Malcolm had uh, supported him and in fact <laughs> offered him uh, a place to sleep when he was in London, um, just because uh, they were friends and also because Malcolm had been so hospitable on his ships when Wellesley needed, uh, had voyaged on them and needed a place to sleep. So it reinforced their friendship um, and uh, Malcolm had done a very good job and I think it was recognized widely of getting the troops ashore and of ensuring that they received all the supplies and uh, reinforcements that they needed. What surprises me ever so slightly is, you know, Wellington, Wellesley as he was back then, he's one of these people who likes people who can do a job well. Malcolm's somebody who does a job incredibly well. Is there any indication that when it came to operations further into the Peninsula War, Wellesley, then Wellington, was kind of making requests about, you know, can you sell, send me Malcolm? He, he was good. I'd quite like somebody of his calibre. That's an interesting question. I have not seen uh, anything that suggests that. As you know, um, Wellington worked with, in various degrees of uh, success with various naval officers, um, especially along the north coast of Spain in the succeeding years of the Peninsular War. I'm not aware that he asked for Malcolm at any point. Malcolm was tied up, as it were, with blockading Cherbourg for much of the the next few years and may have been considered by the Admiralty to be too um, uh, important in that role to be uh, essentially seconded to the peninsula. The other thing is that Malcolm commanded a ship of the line and really for the purposes that uh, Wellington needed ships, they needed to be frigates. So his ship was really too big for that kind of work. Um, that's, that's an interesting question, but that's as, you know, as, as much as I can say about that. And when it comes to the War of 1812, again, Malcolm ends up being a key individual, doesn't he? Particularly when it comes to the assault on New Orleans. Yes. Um, it started off uh, when the, the war ended, or apparently ended, um, in April 1814 in Europe. The um, powers that be decided the British Army needed to be, at least some of it, needed to be sent to North America to reinforce the, the forces there. And Malcolm was given the job of taking uh, 16 troop ships from Bordeaux to the Chesapeake, where there had been ongoing raids and attempts to annoy the Americans for the last year and a half. Um, and he did so, um, arriving in the Chesapeake in late summer of 1814. Uh, he landed the troops that he brought and the troops that were already there were landed and took Washington uh, where incidentally his brother, James Malcolm, who was a Royal Marine, was a, a major, uh, not major in the sense of rank, but an important um, senior officer during the taking of Washington and the burning of the Capitol and so on. But Malcolm wasn't present at that event. He was back on the ships in Chesapeake Bay or in the Patuxent River. Um, and then after Robert Ross, the, the general, had taken Washington. Ross was a good friend of Malcolm. They'd traveled together on the Donegal from, oh, sorry, on the Royal Oak from um, Bordeaux to Bermuda. And both men found each, each other to be very 
compatible and uh, became good friends over the period of the time. Uh, Ross and, and uh, Coburn, the, uh, the admiral, and, and Cochrane, the more senior admiral, decided to take Baltimore. Baltimore was a, a hive of privateers and um, seemed to be uh, open to a, perhaps to a, the same kind of assault that Washington had been. Malcolm did the same thing he'd done with Washington, which was to land the troops, uh, ensure that the uh, forces were in the right place at the right time. Um, and he even went up to uh, accompany the troops up towards the, the fortifications of Baltimore because he really wanted to see a land battle. He says this to his wife, and it's clear that his wife was very dubious about this ambition, but that he wanted to be present when uh, his sort of colleagues did their thing um, and see how that went. As it turned out, he decided he needed to get back to his ships and an hour later, Ross was killed. Um, uh, and the assault on Baltimore didn't really take place. There, there was a battle, but uh, the, the, sea, the, the walls of the city were not uh, breached and the British decided they were gonna back off and try and uh, get their take the uh, take the uh, city by um, bombardment as opposed to by storm and that didn't work either so uh, he was a central figure but not a sort of a, a visible figure in the sense that he's um, working getting the, the troops ashore getting the um, uh, supplies and horses um, from ship to shore and back again when they had to get back on board uh, but not sort of present at the big events. At this point, the, um, <laughs> excuse me, the attention of the um, British turned to New Orleans, which uh, Fortescue, the, the historian of the British Army, claims was because the uh, Royal Navy uh, was really keen on prize money and New Orleans was a great big pot of gold waiting for their attention. And Fortescue is even more sarcastic about Scott's naval officers and claims that they, amongst the greedy uh, naval officers, the Scots were even the most uh, greedy. Um, and this is sort of inappropriate while uh, Cochrane, the, the senior naval officer may well have been interested in the prize money. It's pretty clear Malcolm wasn't. He was pretty tired of the war by this time. He really just wanted to get in, get out, have the Americans surrender or else um, make peace and get on with it. In any case, the British uh, sent a uh, large proportion of their troops to New Orleans. Malcolm took them there in the troop ships. They uh, decided to attack the city, but they couldn't go up the Mississippi because it was too winding, it was too well defended. So they came up with an audacious scheme to use uh, Lake Bourne, which is a, a kind of a lagoon off the ocean that could get them to within 10 miles of the city uh, and, and take boats because Lake Bourne was very shallow. You couldn't take ships there, but they would take the troops in boats, land them on the swampy shores south and east of the city, and then work their way up towards the firm land where they would have the basis for an assault. And so Malcolm was involved in this for about six weeks. And during that time, he was out of his ship. He says that he was uh, uh, camping 
in a tent on swampy ground for uh, almost all this time. And it was December, so it was cold and it was wet and there was sleet. And um, the British got the troops up to New Orleans and they could have even probably captured the, the city if they had made an assault as soon as they got the first lot of troops up. But they decided to wait for reinforcements. And uh, so Pakenham, uh, Lieutenant General Sir Edmund Pakenham arrived with a full set of um, engineers and artillerymen and so on, and set up uh, a plan for an assault on the city, which involved um, a frontal assault on the American lines and a simultaneous uh, end run across the Mississippi uh, in boats. And the idea was that the British troops crossing the Mississippi would take the uh, American batteries that were on the other side and, and cause their, uh, direct their shot against the American lines at the same time as the British troops attacked. And this involved a lot of work on the part of the sailors because they had to get the boats into the Mississippi, across the Mississippi. And uh, Thornton, the colonel who was in charge of this um, operation, uh, to get him and his troops uh, up to the, where the American batteries were. So it, um, the process started on the evening of the 7th uh, and it, they found, rapidly found that it was going to be much, take much longer to get the boats across the Mississippi than they had expected. There were all kinds of problems. And basically they had to be hauled the boats uh, 47 boats had to be hauled across 250 yards of mud to get to the Mississippi. Uh, and it took, a f it took many hours longer than they'd expected. They did it. Uh, Malcolm says that he'd never seen uh, sailors work so hard in his whole life. And he'd seen a lot of activity and seen sailors um, in all kinds of circumstances. But the problem was that by the time Thornton and his men got across the Mississippi, uh, the attack had already taken place. Pakenham didn't wait for the, uh, the, the other shoe to drop as it were, but went ahead with the frontal attack and it was catastrophic and the British were mowed down by the Americans. Um, and so uh, the whole thing failed. Um, so then Malcolm's job was to get all the soldiers back again, including a thousand wounded. There'd been about a thousand dead and another thousand wounded from the force of um, eight or 9,000 that uh, had been brought to New Orleans. And so it took two weeks to get them back the same route they came down the creeks to Lake Bourne, across Lake Bourne, and then to the ships. And at the end of this time, Malcolm was exhausted as was just about everybody else. But he felt that he'd done his, his duty um, as well as he could, and he was probably right. And he was praised by everybody as a result of the, in the uh, official dispatches. But uh, of course, he was not happy with being associated with such a cat catastrophic event. I'm not particularly surprised given the nature of his career up until that point. I want to talk about his career after the war because you talk there about what sounds like a certain war weariness by the time of the New Orleans, um, I think debacle is a, is a fair kind of way of describing it. Um, but he's one of those who manages to stay on in the Navy so what does he end up doing? And I'm very conscious that the simple answer to this is really quite a lot. That is correct, yes. Um, 
1816, there were uh, about 180 admirals in the Royal Navy, of whom Malcolm was one. He'd been promoted admiral in 1813. And there were just 12 jobs for admirals uh, in the nature of things. That's, that's what there was. Um, so as you can imagine, there's a lot of competition for these 12 positions, even though the, of the 180 admirals, some would be too old or too um, uninterested in further seagoing careers, but there were lots of them who wanted to continue and to distinguish themselves in peacetime just as they had in war, Malcolm being one of them. So his first job was, uh, he got it, I think, because of Lord Keith, that Lord Keith, who was the senior admiral and uh, advisor to the British uh, government, uh, tapped him to be uh, Commander-in-Chief of the Cape of Good Hope, which the most important element of which was St. Helena and Napoleon. And so uh, after his predecessor, Sir George Coburn, had left um, the Cape and St. Helena, Malcolm arrived to essentially uh, command the naval forces that were de defending the island and preventing Napoleon from escaping. And as and this is the, the area in which Malcolm may, in fact, be known to uh, some of your listeners. He became friendly with Napoleon. I mean, it, it, if anybody can be said to be friendly with Napoleon, <laughs> which is hard to say, uh, but he met with him 17 times, uh, often alone or with only one or two people. There were long discussions on a whole variety of, of subjects. And um, this was all written up in a book that was published in uh, late 19th century. So, uh, he, he handled himself very well in this kind of tricky position because it was Sir Hudson Lowe, the, the governor of the island and commander of the uh, army forces was a difficult character and at odds with Napoleon and Malcolm tried to mediate between them and at the same time keep his own integrity and um, maintain some kind of decent relationship with the ex-emperor, which he did, but he didn't really succeed in um, uh, resolving the differences between Lowe and the emperor. So that lasted about 15 months and then he went home and was on half pay as a, uh, essentially in semi-retirement for the next 10 years. And my sense is that towards the end of that time he became quite desperate to get a job. And there are some begging letters from him and his brother John to Wellington to asking Wellington to see if he couldn't uh, put a word in a cabinet to get a job for uh, Pulteney Malcolm he was trying for various positions, one of which was a port admiral at Chatham. At one time, he thought he might get the job of uh, being on the board of ordnance, which provided uh, guns and gunpowder to both the army and the Navy, but nothing succeeded. And then in 1828, he had a, a lucky break. And that was that after the Battle of Navarino, in which um, the British fleet in con conjunction with the, uh, so the uh, Russian and French had destroyed a Turkish Egyptian fleet in uh, on the south coast of Greece. The British Admiral commanding Sir Edward Coddington had been um, recalled. Um, the British government was a bit um, un <laughs> unhappy with this event. They called it an untoward event. And um, Coddington was, un I think, unfairly blamed for um, this and other matters about which he had little or no control. But in any case, he was recalled. They needed another commander-in-chief Mediterranean, and Malcolm got the, the post. 
and uh, it was one that he was really suitable for. Um, St. Vincent, the um, crusty British Admiral who was a patron of Nelson had many years before said that in peacetime, the Mediterranean needed an officer of splendor. And I think Malcolm matched this uh, description very well. Um, he worked with both his French and uh, Russian colleagues, the French and Russian fleets were still present in the Mediterranean to try and get the Greeks and the Turks to agree to uh, an approach which would allow uh, a Greek nation to be created. Codrington had died, laid the foundations with us and done a lot of the work, but it was still all up in the air when Malcolm arrived. And so he spent the next three years, the, the posting was a three year posting, uh, working with his colleagues, the diplomats to get this done. Um, at the same time, trying to restrain the Russians from being overly ambitious in the Mediterranean um, and keeping an eye on the French who were the sort of traditional enemies and might go into Egypt again. Um, and he had a lot of fun doing it by the sound of it. He really enjoyed this post. And he got to meet uh, the Sultan of uh, the Ottoman Empire, the head of the, the Turkish Empire, uh, the, the um, ruler of Egypt, who was an astoundingly interesting individual, uh, Capodistrias, who was the head of the Greek forces, and many other diplomats and uh, military men uh, who were involved in the, this kind of whole messy business. Was so uh, at the end of that time, he uh, came home. Unfortunately, his wife had died in the meantime, so it was a, not a happy homecoming, but he soon um, plunged into more posts. In fact, he was given more seagoing posts than any other officer of his time in peacetime. And I think that's because he got on very well with the first Lord who was, by this time was Sir James Graham, the Whigs had taken over from the Tories. So he got to be the commander of the experimental squadron, which was given the job of uh, testing out new hull forms and rigging approaches. He was sent to Ireland to um, keep a lid on the, uh, the Irish Catholics in the South who were protesting against the tithe laws, uh, aid to the civil power kind of thing. Not a job that he relished, but one that he did effectively and without any violence. And then he had another break in that the, his successor in the Mediterranean died in office and they needed a replacement. And Malcolm was again sent to the Mediterranean and essentially finished up uh, the work that he'd begun before uh, several years before. And so um, his, his record during the peace was, as I say, probably the most active seagoing officer of the time. And he was very successful only at the end of his time in the Mediterranean did he have a bit of a run in with the First Lord, but uh, overall it, he essentially did what the gov British government wanted and uh, enjoyed himself into the, into the bargain. Which leads to a, a kind of inevitable question to, to end on, which is you tell the story brilliantly in the course of your book. Why do you think history hasn't really been told until now, though? Is it just the case of, you know, Nelson Factor and it eclipses everything? That's part of it. Um, Nelson tends to sort of uh, take the oxygen out of the room, as it were. Um, 
and that I noted in the book that there's a sort of nicely visual expression of this in uh, the, an early uh, edition of the Illustrated London News shows a picture of the statue of Malcolm that was put in Westminster, uh, sorry, in the St. Paul's Cathedral uh, after his death by his friends as a, to represent this uh, eminent sailor. And on the same page, there's a bigger picture of Nelson's column, which is going up at the same time. So uh, yes, Nelson sort of tends to overwhelm things. I think there are some other factors at work, one of which was that for much of his early career, at least, <laughs> Malcolm was in the East Indies and was out of sight, out of view of uh, uh, people at home, the newspapers and so on. Uh, so he wasn't um, visible to the, the sort of general public. Another is that he didn't have a, a Victorian biographer. Many of the um, people who, the naval officers who became well-known uh, were well-known because they had a, a relative or friend who wrote their biography after their death, uh, sort of life and letters. <clears throat> For reasons that I don't quite understand, his son, who lived a very long life, did not do that. Um, and there are no other relatives who took this on. So even though he was very well known and, and in the newspapers and famous in his time, 50 years later, his name had sort of uh, fallen off the historical um, uh, chart. And uh, the result was that um, there is no other, there's no previous biography of him. He's mentioned in passing in a number of books and certainly in a number of memoirs at the time. He was a because his personality was so um, uh, interesting and attractive, a lot of his colleagues mentioned him, but nobody wrote his biography. So I think that both the Nelson factor and the fact that he didn't have a biographer in the Victorian period are part of the reason for his uh, apparent invisibility. Well, I'm delighted to say he does have a biographer now, not least yours truly. So The Sea is My Element, The Eventful Life of Admiral Sir Courtney Malcolm is available from Hellion. As I'm always telling you folks, please go and buy it from Hellion, not from Amazon. Jeff Bezos spends your money on rocket fuel. If you buy it through Hellion, then Paul will get a cut of the royalties and it will be far more substantial than what he'll get if you go buy it through Amazon. Do go buy the book if you want to go buy through Amazon, go buy through Amazon. But if at all possible, please go buy through Hellion and support the, uh, the brilliant authors who make these fantastic podcasts happen for you. Paul, thank you ever so much for this. Please tell us that you're working on something now and that you know I can have you back and we can talk more naval stuff or something else equally fascinating in the future. Yes, I have a couple of things that I'm working on in the sense that I'm trying to decide whether there's enough information to, to do a biography. Um, there are many, many interesting individuals of this period in the, in the Royal Navy. And uh, it's a sort of a, a task to find the ones that have the, both the good story and the, uh, the documentary background to make them work. Brilliant, and are you on social media? Uh, not Twitter, but I am on Facebook. Fantastic, so folks can keep an eye out for your work there. Paul, thank you ever so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you, and I enjoyed doing it. Before you go, do me a favour, like, subscribe, share and leave a review. It'll cost a couple of seconds of your time, but it makes a huge difference. 
to the algorithms which push this podcast out around the world. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, you've heard my spiel on this often enough in previous episodes, but essentially everything gets reinvested into growing the content from tech upgrades to new kit aimed at bringing you more variety to the show. There are perks for regular supporters. Check out the Patreon link for more on that. But if that's not for you and you want to leave a one-off tip, you can do that via Ko-fi. Each hour of podcasting has anything from four to six hours of time poured into it, so your support in whatever form it takes, financial or digital, is hugely appreciated. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone and Zach Golby, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Coulson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. Join me in a few days when Naval Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.